Please open your Bibles, if you would please, and follow along in our text this morning, James chapter 1, and again, verses 1 through 12. I'd like you to follow along. I want your eyes to see it, your ears to hear it, and your hearts to digest it. Our message this morning, I think, is a little bit more difficult in the understanding of the picture that the James is drawing for us, and we're going to trust that the Lord will give us the grace to be able to handle it. James, a servant in God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, For he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away, for the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat that it is withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. May God again bless to our hearts the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we pause as we have again read this portion of your word, and we're thankful for it as we again walk through these verses and consider what your spirit had laid upon the heart of James to write and has been preserved and provided for us even this morning. We ask that you'll give us clarity of heart and mind. We recognize that we've come in here at times with all kinds of distractions whirling around in our hearts and minds, and we pray that your spirit will help us to be able to focus on what is presented here, what the, uh, the author has given to us for our edification and for the glory of you, dear Lord. Uh, assist Father, we pray, and when we're concluded, that we might be able to give you the thanks for what has been seated within our hearts, and that your work will continue to grow in our hearts, not only this day, but throughout life. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. By the grace of God, we've reached our third leg of this walk through this portion of this very practical book of James. Uh, Chapter 1, and again, we're slugging through nicely, I hope, uh, these first 12 verses. And I trust that you've remembered what uh, a couple weeks ago we were dealing with in the first uh, few verses. 
um, walking through them. And the bottom line, I think we could say, is knowing that the Holy Spirit, teaching James, teaching us, that we indeed have a life of faith that is often tested in this life. The first four verses, we saw that true faith has uh, a joy that comes out of it when it's seen in times of trials. Uh, Verses 5 through 8, we talked about how wisdom is needed when those trials come. And we ask of God, God, I I can't deal with this. What do you want me to do? And so he has provided that with an answer. And then verses 9 through 12, as we have today, James will show us that true faith holds, true faith believes in, is anchored upon the viewpoint that God has given to poverty and riches. And in saying that, I think it's an indication that we as human beings don't always see what God sees or what God intends for us to see when it comes to riches and poverty. Hence the the, the direction that he's given to us. We don't always have the same perspective as God does. So to begin with, let me say that there's a, a contrast between the permanent and the temporary when it comes to riches and poverty. It's a simple thought. But we think of riches, and there are some that are everlasting. They last, and others, they're just temporary. They just somewhat disappear. And James continues to use this uh, picture as he works on through this message. We're going to see that if we don't understand that, the wealth of what is provided for us in the text The blessedness of what God gives in the riches in himself, we can't grasp that. We're the losers for sure. So hold on to those simple thoughts as we begin. Our text again, beginning in verse 9, James is talking to the poor, and verses 10 and 11 to the rich. And finally, he offers in verse 12, for those who persevere in trials, he's offering them a great blessing. That's what we'll attempt to deal with this morning. So, first point, verses 9, and, and I'll include in here the first part of verse 10, the matter of a brother of low degree. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Brother of low degree. Um, Millie's mom had a house back in the Philippines. It was commonly referred to as humble house. Uh, it was a house of low degree. It was a basic house, a very simple house. And we affectionately called it humble house. And so you get a picture of the type of people that he is referring to in this description here. A certain class of people that were in the church that we would say were poor. Yet James gives us kind of a head-scratching truth in that he says the poor are rich and the rich are poor. Sounds like some mumbo-jumbo talk of philosophy or whatever. Well, it's not. And it's not a matter of communism where he's saying the, the rich will become poor and the poor become rich, kind of a reclassification, removing of, of goods and so forth. But he says this is a way, I believe, that of showing the way the church identified people who were rich and poor. He said that they were thinking that they grew up within the world and they brought it into the church, how I viewed a person who is rich and how I viewed a person who is poor. And that isn't necessarily the way God wanted them to. Look again to your text or to chapter 2 
And follow along, I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with gold ring, goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and saith unto him, Sit thou here at a good place. He say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial with yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not the rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not blaspheme the worship. Do not blaspheme that worship name by which ye are called. Uh, James talks a lot in this book. Uh, our text in chapter 1, passage that we read here in chapter 2, gets into chapter 5, and he's talking more about the rich and the poor and a misunderstanding that the believers had. So it's an important topic to him. But why was it important? Well, obviously, the people of this particular church, and again, uh, you have to remember who he's talking to. Uh, there wasn't one particular church. Who, who, who did he write the letter to? Chapter 1, verse 1. To the 12... I forgot my hearing aid. Thank you. <laughs> to the 12 tribes. So it's a general group. A classification of Jews who are believers. And he says, to you, there's some misunderstanding about there's the rich and the poor. And as they have come into the church, all of a sudden there was an attitude that they had towards those who were Christians, and they were treating them the exact same way the world treated them. And God says, no, that's not the way that it ought to be. That isn't at all the picture that I want you to have. So James offers up to these people who were Jewish Christians information, facts, truth, and the only thing that he could use for them, because they were Jewish background, was the Old Testament in the words of Jesus. You're going to instruct them in truth, then those were the only, they had no New Testament, remember? <laughs> this is the very beginning of it. So he's using truths from the Old Testament that they should have known, and the words of Christ to bring them around to an understanding of this relationship that they had with others. There's three things that he brings to them. And the first one, he says, is that in the Old Testament, you see, there's a clear understanding that God had a particular interest in the poor. God had a heart for the poor. Uh, Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is the God of this holy habitation. All of a sudden he's saying God's interest is to these people without. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.18, he doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Two passages of the Old Testament, which they should have known as Jews, now believers. And he's saying, this is the attitude that your God has towards the poor. 
So what does James conclude? Chapter 2, verse 5, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith? Wake up! This is God's personal interest in these people. Now he takes it to another step, and he's saying because God has such a personal concern for the poor, he says to the church, you ought to mirror this. This ought to be your attitude. I read 10.18. Well, here's 10.19. God says, love ye the stranger. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Wow. He says, because I loved them and I cared for them and provided for them. You love the stranger. And the stranger means those who are in essence cast out. Those who are the poor. So James concludes then in 127, uh, an aspect of pure religion, and it's a great verse that we get to later, but he said, to visit the fatherless and widows in their distress. As believers, one of the aspects of pure religion, relationship that we have with our fellow man, is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their distress. Those in need. I pass that on to you. God does this. Now you are to mirror this very same thing. And then over in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, James comes to a conclusion that those who make a profession of faith ought to have a heart that reveals this very same attitude. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of them say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye have not ye have You've give, you give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? So some poor person comes to these believers and he says, hey, I'm hungry. And he says, blessings on you. Let me pray for you. And you send him away and you've given him nothing out of that. He says, where is the spiritual aspect of that? He, he has no faith whatsoever. That's not what God had done. That's not the attitude God had towards his people, neither should it be ours. Again, it's a beautiful practical application. And then the third thing James wants to present to them is that in the Old Testament, oftentimes there's an association with the poor being humble and righteous and the rich being wicked. Oftentimes you'll read through various texts and it talks about that. Uh, Jesus mentions this in the Beatitudes in Luke 6, verse 20. He says, blessed are ye who are poor. Jesus gives a blessing on those. And then a couple verses later, he says, but woe to you that are rich. Jesus says this is a common understanding. There's a blessing to those who are poor and and a woe, uh, a condemnation to the rich. And James ties this together and he says, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? So so both Jesus and James condemn the rich because of the advantage they overtook of the poor. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, that's how the rich became rich. The tax collectors became rich by taking from the poor the very last of their substance and hence they end up becoming rich. You think about these three points, you can almost come away with an easy description of saying, well, they're good guys and bad guys. The good guys are the poor. The bad guys are the rich. And you hear that in the culture and that which we live in today. That's kind of a moral uh, 
compass that we've been fighting through. The rich are the bad because they oppress, and the poor are the good because they've been oppressed. And therefore, we've got to overthrow the rich and make everything equal. Communism 101, isn't it? But let me warn you that even though there are people that use the scriptures to come to such a conclusion, the Bible doesn't automatically do that. The Bible doesn't automatically condemn everybody who is rich as being unjust and being to be condemned and doesn't elevate everybody who's poor simply because they are poor. Look at the characters of scripture and you often find that there are many who have been blessed with riches and they are very righteous people. Think of Abraham and Job and David and Solomon and even tax collector Zacchaeus. You know, God looked upon them with favor in the industry that they showed in their honesty and their righteousness before God, which God had given them, and he blessed them tangibly in a marvelous way. And on the same hand, poverty is often described in Scripture as a result of laziness or sin. The book of Proverbs gives many verses in that, making that application. Because you are, therefore, this is what you receive. Paul writes, they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare. Scripture talks about the warnings to the rich. Because of the power and the wealth that it describes, it falls into that. Solomon's own words, a rich man is wise in his own conceit. A man becomes rich and all of a sudden he's conceited, he's proud, he's arrogant. And therefore he doesn't need anything else. I've made myself my own country, my own industry, I am what I am, or that he has had no need of God. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall. Go around the world and find how many cemeteries with huge monuments to men and women and families of people who are vastly rich. And who are they today? Nothing. Because they trusted in their riches. 1990, we were at a church, and our earliest ministry was to start a, a, a Bible club, kids up to around the age of 12 or 13, and went around and visited the homes and so forth. And I got up to this one neighborhood in the town, and it wasn't the best of neighborhoods, but a young girl came, I think she was about 11 or so, and got introduced to her mom and dad, and and um, she started coming, and all of a sudden there was a little more interest, and mom and dad want to talk to you, you know. Come to find out they weren't married. And um, uh, talk went on and on, and, and uh, uh, they weren't, had any idea of, of spiritual things. Uh, made professions of faith. I had the joy of, of uniting them in, in, in marriage, and um, it was just a, a blessed time to see this, you know, dissociated, disjunct family, all of a sudden come to Christ and, and, and make that. About a year after that, the husband who wasn't working, he had, had an injury, a work-related injury. And finally, the insurance company paid him off. Huge sum of money. They got out of that section of town and all of a sudden bought their own house in a much nicer section of town. All of a sudden, church didn't necessarily have the same meaning anymore. All of a sudden, it was just kind of off like that. And then the wife had a nice job working at a, at a very important factory in town, office worker. 
and uh, come to find out she was having an affair with somebody in the office. And then there was a matter of drugs. And all of a sudden there was this explosion. And, and he that trusteth in riches shall fall. And they fell. And they fell. And they fell. There was a great trust in Christ and make a profession and make things all right when they were poor and they had nothing. I only had the Lord, but all of a sudden, boy, it just came in. What do we need the Lord for? We've got it today. The other side of the coin, the Bible shows that poverty can be a mixed bag. We mentioned earlier that that poverty can be a result of ignoring the word of God. In other words, don't listen to him. Uh, Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuseth instruction. And obviously this is a instruction from God's word. Um, Poverty can also destroy a man. It can even tempt him to the place of stealing if he's not going to trust in the Lord. Remember Jesus' first Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. I have a little commentary from uh, Leon Morris on this first beatitude, and he says, Jesus is not blessing poverty itself. Remember, he says, blessed be the poor. He's not blessing poverty. That can be easily a curse as well as a blessing. It is his disciples to whom Jesus is speaking. They are poor, and they know that they are without resources. They rely upon God, and they must rely upon him, for they have nothing of their own on which to rely. The rich of this world are often self-reliant, not so the poor. The disciples could hear that, words of Jesus, and he says, blessed are the poor. Not because you're poor, but because my poverty has brought me to the place where I have nothing else to lean on. And I think of that family, you know. Nothing else to lean on, and God is there, and he's been faithful and brought me all through these things. The disciples understood that. So I think we can easily say that poverty can be an advantage if it shows the person his need for the Lord. Poverty is fantastic because it brings me about to the place of life to say, I have nothing else. I can do nothing else. Only God can be my sufficiency. Now, with that as a background, let's look at what James says to the poor. Verse 9. Let the brother of low degree, meaning the poor man, rejoice in that he is exalted. Let him glory, exaltation. Let him glory, let him rejoice in the spiritual wealth of Christ. When a poor man trusts in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, his bank is full. When the poor man comes and turns his life over to Christ, he has a vast fortune. He is the child of the King of Kings. He has all of the resources that this king has. Paul pictures the believer as seated in a position of honor with Christ in heavenly places, and he repeatedly offers the picture of believers as being in Christ. In other words, the blessings that the second person of the Trinity, 
the eternal Son of God has is the same as the believer has. Nothing less. Paul pictures the believer as such. In Corinthians, he writes, For all things are yours, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Now, he's just not talking to, meaning poor people, but he's talking to those people who have come to the place that says, I am poor because I have nothing, whether I have money or I have no money. I am rich in Christ because all of this is mine, because it is in Christ. Later on in Romans 8, he says to the children of God that we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Talk about an inheritance. The little bumper sticker, you know, I'm, I'm spending my children's inheritance, you know. <laughs> you know what am I going to get? You, nothing, you know. But he says, in Christ, I have everything. I'm an heir of the sons of God. Glory in his precious truths. To the skeptic, he listens to this up and he says, that's a bunch of hooey. You know, you're going to go to a poor man? And you're going to say, you are rich in Christ, but he's still hungry. And he's still living in this shack. And he's still wearing the same beat of clothes, and his kids don't have any shoes. There's no medical attention, and there's none of this, and there's none of that. And he's like, How can you tell that this man is rich? How can you tell that this man has all types of things? That type of thinking comes from a materialistic mind. This person ignores the fact that the basic human need is not physical, it's spiritual. The basic human need for all mankind is spiritual. Why does the person become rich so he can be more powerful and buy this and buy this in order to satisfy his own longing to be something, to have something? But there's never enough. Years ago, there was a survey done among office workers and to the office workers who got 10,000. He says, when would you be happy? And they said, well, when I got 12,000. And they asked $12,000 salaries, you know, when would you be happy? When I had 14,000, you know, when he, to 16,000. It just kept on going up. There was never a place of satisfaction because materialistic things never satisfy. That's the picture that he draws for us. That's the kind of thinking we have to understand. The Bible calls us to believe that our spiritual riches in Christ are reality and that material riches are deceptive. It's a vapor. What scripture comes about, and again, I don't have the reality of it other than that which is in my heart. This is reality. What, what, what the truths of God's word, this is reality. But the materialistic things, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a vapor and it's gone. I was talking with somebody this past week about their retirement account. And at the end of, on December 31st of last year, the retirement account was at $96,000. And right now, it's at $71,000. In a few months. God, Jesus says to me, he says, is that, is that true for all? I said, that's the vapor. Consumer prices are up 9.1%, largest increase in 40 years. 
You've gone to the store, you've tried to buy or looked at the prices of things. Wow! You know, how's, it's the materialistic world says this is not reality. This is just a vapor. And yet we bank our lives on it. But what I have in Christ can never be taken away. Now, go back to verse 9 and they ask the question, what does it mean when you tell this brother of low degree to rejoice in that he's exalted? You know, are they just words? Or is there a picture behind it that necessitates definition? Obviously, it doesn't mean that he can boast in anything. The rich man can boast because I have accomplished, but the poor man can't boast. He can't exalt himself. I'm proud of what I've done and what I've accomplished. The poor man can't do that. And in truth, it's true for all of us because we are all products of grace. Understand the word grace. It is unmerited favor. Giving us something we don't deserve. Whatever I am, whatever I have, whatever I hope to be, whatever is of, of, of all of those things, tangible or intangible, I've not deserved it. God's given it to us by his free grace. He's not asked us for anything. I don't have a place of worthiness. He says, well, you're going to do this and you're going to, therefore I'm going to give you. No. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. When I was still a condemned person, while I was still deep set in my sin, Christ died for me and paid for that, that penalty for my sin. So why would he give me anything else? Because it's his grace. So for the poor man to come along and say, I can boast? No, he can't. None of us can boast. So obviously it's not in that. Quite the opposite. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and made the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things which are. That, in other words, the reason for it, that God chose this way, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, according to as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. All things, everything, God says, I've chosen this that doesn't make sense. I've chosen this that is, is absolute foolishness out of my choice because there's no way for that other than my glory to be received. What a powerful picture. So that's how the poor man can rejoice. He rejoices in the sufficiency of Christ. He may not have a place of boast. He may not have a place in this world's order. He may not have anything 
But he says, the one who has everything to which I am an heir, there he has everything, and I have that. So, that's the position of the poor believer. What about the rich? A rich believer, he says, can glory in his humiliation in Christ because he knows that it represents the eternal riches that will never pass away. Verses 10 and 11. But the rich, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also the rich man fade away in his ways. Our psalm song worked in good today. I don't know whether you caught that or not, but it it was a perfect uh, addition to that. As you read this, and as you go really through the book of James, it doesn't seem that he's talking to the rich worldwide. He's talking to rich believers. Uh, When the rich man is tempted to glory, Oftentimes he glories in his wealth or he glories in his status. He glories in his power because I've made it because of my wealth. I was able to do that because of my wealth. Any of you ever fly into Tampa? You fly around into Tampa and you fly over and there are these little islands all outside and they are filled with these huge homes. Well, I don't think anybody's glorying in their riches in, in the current situation, you know. When we think of this, when we think of the rich like that, we think of, you know, an Elon Musk or a, a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates, those types of guys. By the world's standards, yet most of us are rich. By the world's standards, when it comes to pointing fingers, we are. Most of you own your own homes. You have computers, TVs, dozens of devices in our life just to make life easier, nicer, more complete, more comfortable. Most of us own more than one car. Our closets are bulging with so many clothes that it takes us a while to decide what we're going to wear. I just don't know. Yet much of the world in which we live Surrounded with communities of crowded shacks with no indoor plumbing and no electricity. And the meals that they have, as meager as they may be, are very small and nothing. So I think we need to apply verses 10 and 11 to ourselves, to the rich of the world. And in that case, what is it for us to glory in our humiliation? What does that mean? What does it mean for us to glory in our humiliation? First of all, it means to glory in the fact that God has opened our eyes to the vanity of this world. And I trust that's the case. I trust that's true in your heart. That you see in the world in which we live, the achievement of certain levels to become somebody or to advance and so forth. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with doing advancement and growth. But if I understand that to be the end all, then I don't see it. But if God has opened my eyes to the reality of these things and the temporariness of them, used to be an old TV show, Lives of the Rich and Famous, you know, that guy had that 
squeaky voice, you know, and people, they go down to Hollywood or different parts of the world and show the mansions and the pools and, and, and other things that, you know, this is what they drive and these are the boats they've got and everything else that, and people would watch that, not any of you, obviously, but people would watch that and say, wow, that's the type of life I'd love to live. That's the, that's the place that I'd love to have my life and retire there or whatever it goes Celebrities struck down, but what kind of life would it be for the Christian? How tragic to consume yourselves with such an attitude, emptiness, so that God would open our eyes to see the vanity of the world's wealth. But secondly, that we can glory in the fact that God is our true essential happiness and honor. If I lost everything today, and sometimes, you know, they've done interviews, the news people, and, and one girl, she looked fairly young, and she says, we just got down here, and a couple months ago moved in, and it was a modular home, trailer park, you know, and it's gone, and she was crushed. But there are other ones who says, we're still alive, you know, I'm happy. If, if we were to lose stuff, would Christ still be our happiness? Would he be our sufficiency? And would we be able to say, I've lost it all, but I still have him? Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth, and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight in, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 9. You know. He oversees it all. Where are the, the, the mighty, uh, love the archaeological digs there in, in uh, Mount Vesuvius when it you know, went over the Pompeii, you know. And they're digging down into the city of Pompeii, and they're finding these beautiful uh, wall paintings. You know, I mean, uh, the, the tiles on the floor, just gorgeous. And in a second, the, the hot ash from the volcano comes in, it goes whoosh, and, and, and just sucks all the air out of their lives and entombs them in ash, and that's it. And it's gone. And Jeremiah says, all of those things understand that God is the one who perfectly understands it all, and he exercises according to his perfect plan. Lastly, we can glory in the fact, we as rich people, that we know we have an internal inheritance, just like the poor man that will not fade away. We're all the same in this case. Peter says, an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. Who's it reserved? God did. How was it reserved? It was reserved when Christ took himself voluntarily to the cross and died and gave his life a propitiation, a payment for my sin. And therefore God says, all right, his reservation is all taken care of. Nothing that this world offers will be much worthy of that. 
So James tells the poor that they are rich in Christ and tells the rich that they are poor in their humiliation, which takes us to the last point, and I want you to see this in verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This is the reality of the test of faith for the rich and the poor. It's a great joy and a great picture for us to understand. Rich and poor can be tempted by greed and pride. Uh, we work with some brethren up in the northern part of Kenya that are absolutely, they got nothing. They live in, some of them, I mean, they raise goats and some camels, but right now, after two years of drought, the goats are dying left and right. They got nothing. But I've observed pride in their hearts and greed in their hearts. What could they be proud of or greedy of? Well, they could always have somebody else that they're over who is less than them. The, the same attitude, the same provision for any one of them. They become outcast, out of touch with the riches of Christ and his true happiness. I think of the prodigal son. Here's a, a young man who had everything under his father's home with his father's love, and he was allured away from that by the promise of what the world outside had to offer. And he went. And it was only through the trials and tribulations that he was able to persevere through that he came out of it in the end. Again, verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth, or perseveres, under temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to them that love him. Now, if I'm kind of casually trying to give one of those tests, fill in the blanks, you know, you might expect James to say, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who persevere. You ever think of that? You get a crown of life if you persevere through trials. It sounds legitimate. God promised to those who, who, who obey. Crown of life is available to those who are obedient or to those who believe. But it doesn't say any of that, does it? A crown of life is for whom? To those who, what does it say? Who love him. Wow. Talk about no action. Talk about just a heart's allegiance to him. And if I've come to the place of grace, which I have nothing and am nothing, and everything that I have is because of Christ, how can I but love him? Remember Peter, Mr. Big Mouth and his great boast? And then at the end, he denies the Lord three times. And when he meets with Peter later on, you know, after the, the resurrection, what does he say to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know, feed my sheep. The restoration of the understanding of the relationship between the Lord and Peter was found within that love for Christ. Love for him. I think James brings all of these things about Am I loving the world more, or am I loving my Jesus? 
Am I allowing him to be the center of my heart's attention and focus and satisfaction? Or are there other things that are applying for my, my, my interest, my desires, my growth? I'll close with one illustration I found. George Whitfield, which mentioned this morning, had passed away in our bulletin. He says, he was once told of seeing some criminals riding in a cart on their way to the gallows. They were arguing about who would sit on the right hand of the cart with no more concern than children arguing about who sits where, where they are in the car. These men were about to die, and they were just concerned about where they were sitting. And when you think of all of the things in our life that we fight about and divide about and argue about in and, and, and everything that we think is a priority, when the whole thing is life is going to end any time, any day. And, and what, what James offers here is such a beautiful picture of the fullness of what is to be an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. What we have in Christ is everything. Our life ought to exhibit such in all things. Let's pray. Father, a lot of things were said, a lot of words were tossed out, a lot of pictures drawn mentally, um, and yet it is your word. And the words of man will disappear, but um, your spirit, we trust, will take the words of scripture and bring about the reality of the things that are necessary. We believe James wrote this with a passion in his heart because his real concern for the lives of the people in the, that he was writing, those of the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad in that area, scattered and they were struggling with things in life. And so we recognize that his answer was that relationship that was established before the foundation of the world, that in Christ we have it all. Help us, Father, to understand the richness of our life, not in the material possessions that we have, but in the fullness of what Christ has offered and bringing us to himself. We thank you. Help us never to disregard that, but may it always be for our eyes, our steps, and everything we do. We ask it in his name. Amen.